This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No guests, no preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 106. This queen of women was the lady captain. So last time we met Georgia Damsky and introduced the concept of the contactees. And this week we're going to see one of the people who's, who followed in his cosmic footsteps. Truman Bethram was, in, in terms of pure chronological order of publication of his story, the second post-1947 contactee. Bethram himself always claimed to be the first one to his knowledge to have actual contact with space people. And while George Adamski's tales of saucer, uh, saucer adventures spent a lot of time on philosophical concepts and moral issues of the day, Bethram's uh, pretty much doesn't. But it does provide a sort of strange window into one kind of strange man's life in the 1950s and, um, and, and deals with some issues such as marriage, gender, uh, some politics, and, uh, and the Cold War. So hang on as Truman Bethram meets... Aura Reigns, the Lady Captain. Bethram's adventure began on the night of July 27, 1952. He was working on a road construction site in California, and he wandered out to a, a hillside. He fell asleep and woke up an hour later, and his truck, he said, was surrounded by what he called eight to ten small-sized men. At first, they're unable to understand anything that Truman is saying to them, However, conveniently, they learn English within a few minutes and invite Truman to enter their saucer, where he would meet their captain. As Bethram later wrote, quote, Little did I suspect that their captain would turn out to be a woman. And what a woman! End quote. So, George Adamski called himself a professor. He wasn't. But Truman Bethram went to great lengths to establish his credentials as a down-to-earth, hard-working, sane man. He provides the reader with a short biography in his book, Aboard a Flying Saucer, and includes family and childhood details which establish that until his contact experience, he was just a solid working-class guy with a pretty unremarkable background. He even offers a very vague but very complimentary reference letter from the treasurer of his local union. To whom it may concern... Mr. Truman Bethram has been a journeyman engineer since July 1942, working under the jurisdiction of Local Union No. 12 of the International Union of Operating Engineers. Our records in this office show that he is a reliable and trustworthy man. He is capable of heavy-duty repair, very capable as a welder and operating engineer. He has always been agreeable to accept employment in remote areas. He has been sought after by employers for his ability to handle electric arcs and layout work of the highest quality. I take great pleasure in recommending Truman Bethram to anyone that needs his services. Very truly yours, J.R. Groom, Treasurer, IUOE Local Union Number 12. I really don't think that that poor union treasurer had any idea how that letter of recommendation would be used. Uh, but e even so, uh, Bethram does not present himself as a man of learning or any great insight. At this point, he's a simple man with a story to tell. Of course, Truman was up front, uh, at least in private correspondence, about hiring a ghostwriter to actually write his book, Aboard a Flying Saucer, which many contactees didn't really talk about. Many of them did have ghostwriters, but Bethram is one of the few where we have 
you know, him writing a letter, um, a number of letters in this case to Gray Barker. I know, I don't think last week we mentioned Gray Barker, but we're back to mentioning Gray Barker. Um, in late 1953, before the publication of Abort a, Fly- Abort a Flying Saucer, Bethram discussed his motivations for creating the book with Barker and discusses the ghostwriting a bit. I found that many people whom I have told of my wonderful friends from space were using my words in their speaking engagements, etc. So I finally decided to do something myself and have had my experiences written in book for me by a fine writer. It is now in the hands of publishers for consideration. I hope it will be published soon, for it will be a revelation. I still have my original notes I gave to Miss Tennyson that did my ghosting. Please remember, I am not a professional writer. I just wrote down the conversation and what happened and a few of my own conclusions. Arguably, the question of whether or not Bethram or any other contactee actually wrote their stories themselves or dictated them to a ghostwriter is actually not really relevant to the substance of the ideas they wish to convey. Contemporary and modern critics of contactees often um, would, would use accusations or admissions of ghostwriting as some sort of reflection on the veracity or truthfulness of the contact stories being told. However, I, I think for our purposes, uh, trying to understand these stories, uh, the literal truth or fiction of these contact claims is kind of um, takes a back seat to the messages that they sought to tell, whether it's Adamski's uh, talk of the cosmic law and cosmic philosophy that we saw last week, or, as we're going to see, whatever Truman Bethram was trying to talk about. Both Adamski and Bethram spoke of their encounters before actually publishing their books, so in some fundamental way, they were in the originators of their overall stories, but the words themselves in the books might not have been completely theirs. The aliens in uh, Bethram's account are from the planet Clarion, and what we saw with George Adamski was, and many other contactees, is that the aliens, their space brother friends, would come from other planets in our solar system, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, whatever. Clarion is not one of the planets in our solar system, but Bethram did sort of vaguely explain that Clarion was was a planet sort of on the opposite side of our moon from Earth, or it was sort of a, a, a twin to Earth, sort of a hidden planet flying around. The captain of the ship is, is named Ara Rains, and Ara is an anomaly within the realm of space-age contact stories. She's not only a woman, she's a woman who's in charge, and her personality is fairly well-developed. Uh, she's different from other space people in, um, in, in that she does seem to have an actual personality. She's not just a conduit through which the contactee can can tell their story uh, or tell their ideas of philosophical or political um, idealism. And so Aboard a Flying Saucer, Bethram's 1953 book, is the first contactee work through which we can actually view some 1950s gender roles in the American uh, in, in the, the American West and in the United States in general. The role of women and, and that there's a woman that has an active role at all, separates Bethram's contact account from Adamski's. Uh, as we saw last week in, in Adamski's contact stories, women mostly sat around eating fruit. They, they, they didn't really do much at all. Even considering later contact works, um, Bethram's dealings with Aura are weird, even for contact stories. 
she's a saucer captain in position of command, but she's also presented in, in what we might call a more overtly gendered way than space men and women usually are. What I mean by that, by that is, um, is, is that the fact that she is a woman becomes sort of the point of her. Uh, she's not just a spaceship captain. She's a woman. And you can see this in the specific and detailed accounting of the costumes um, the and, and just the descriptions in general. Uh, Bethram described the crew, the men in the crew he meets, as short um, with dark olive-hued faces, and they wore black build caps, jackets like cowboys. But his description of the captain is much more flowery. After getting on the saucer, or scow as they call it, it seemed to me that it was again brought into a level position, though I felt no noticeable movement. I was led forward about fifteen paces through a narrow passageway, still with the small man's hand firmly grasping my arm. Then we turned into a beautifully furnished office or captain's cabin. That is where my eyes bulged again. I stood before their captain, a beautiful woman. My eyes were glued on the woman, and I paid no attention for the moment to the interior of the saucer. She was a trifle shorter than any of the men I had seen. Her smooth skin was a beautiful olive and rose, and her brown-eyed flashing smile seemed to make her complexion appear more glowing. I am sure she wore no makeup, but she certainly needed none. So this queen of women was the lady captain. She wore no jewelry, not even a buckle on her belt. Her black hair was short and brushed into an upward curl at the ends, and she wore jauntily tilted on one side of her proudly held head a black and red beret. She was standing before a great, wide, flat-topped desk, with her graceful hands resting upon it. Her bodice was of some fitted material which looked like black velvet, with short sleeves decorated with a small red ribbon bow. The top of her skirt, which I could see above the edge of the desk, was of the most radiant red material I had ever seen. It looked like wool and was set all round in flat, small pleats. Truman's attention to Aura Reigns' appearance and suggestions of the degree to which he was sort of, he was sort of crushing on her a little bit. He had a, he had a real crush on Aura Reigns, and it sort of appears throughout the book. He's attracted to her, but there's a condescending tone. Um, he often refers to her as, quote, the little lady captain. And I, I can't believe that if there were a male captain of the ship, Truman would call him the big man captain. Um, additionally, his condescending attitude toward her is sometimes combined with his expression of appreciation for her physical beauty. After becoming acquainted with her, um, Truman attempts a sort of clumsy compliment. I told her how impressed I was that a woman was captain of such a piece of equipment, how the males of our earth would rate her as tops in shapeliness and beauty. At some point, probably on Valentine's Day, I'm going to write my wife a note in which I tell her how the males of our earth would rate her as tops in shapeliness and beauty and see what kind of reaction I get. Anyway, there are some pretty obvious connections in here between her beauty and Truman's surprise that she's in command of a spacecraft. I kind of wonder if he would have been so surprised she was a captain if she had been less attractive to him. Throughout the book, Bethram's relationship with his wife, Mary, 
and this is pretty interesting, is increasingly strained. Um, he's been working on construction jobs all over the place, months and weeks at a time away from his family. And he writes to his wife soon after his encounters with the Clarionites begin. And at first in the book, he's simply asking her to come visit him, hoping to introduce her to the visitors. She doesn't want to come, so he decides to tell her the whole story of the visit. And her reaction is far from what he expected. She responded to his letter with one of her own, claiming to be, quote, very dismayed and shocked to her very foundations by the story, end quote. Truman describes what his wife did next. Since we had only been married a few years, my wife had taken the trouble to telephone my daughters long distance and ask them if I had ever been the victim of a visual delusion or had ever been in any mental institution. Mary's disbelief of Truman's story, um, and it's increasingly tinged with jealousy about his friendship with Aura Reigns. Um, of course, remember, this is being told from Truman's perspective, so he's sort of explaining to us kind of that his wife was jealous of his friendship with the lady captain. But the skepticism would continue until she met George Adamski. Seriously, there's like a superhero contactee meetup near the end of this book. Adamski meets Mary and and tells her that Truman is probably telling the truth. And as the book ends, Mary is excited by the prospect of someday meeting the Clarionites, although I believe they got divorced later on, Mary and Truman. Uh, I do not know if Truman actually left Mary for Aura Reigns. So there are some other human earthling characters uh, with whom Truman surrounds himself in the book, and they sort of range from outright skepticism to interest and almost acceptance and belief of his stories. And this is really interesting to me. Until the very end of, this, of the story, Mary, Truman's wife, was the only woman who was on the skeptical end of the spectrum. Other than Mary, the people who didn't believe Truman were the guys he hung out with, uh, especially his supervisor, Whitey. Um, and the people in Truman's life who believed his story were women, Truman's adult daughters, Whitey's wife, a waitress in a local restaurant. So... This is really interesting. As, as Tr- Bethram's interest in the Clarionites approaches sort of the level of obsession, Mary, in disbelieving him, moves further away of, of the role of wife and supporter and, and sort of a female character, female, I'm doing air quotes here, a female character. And she's becoming more somebody in the role of the antagonist and skeptical and, again, air quotes, male character in the story. Um, She's not on the side of all the, all the women. She's on the side of the men. Um, and Aura Reigns takes on the role of, of the one woman Truman can talk to and ask questions of and to whom he feels connected. It doesn't really um, take a lot of imagination to think that Truman might have been sort of working out some issues with his wife through the writing of this flying saucer tale. And um, if... Other contactees wrote their books in order to, you know, talk about the cosmic philosophy and the cosmic law and, and, and universal brotherhood. I, I sometimes get the impression that, that at least one reason Truman might have written this book was to make his wife jealous, which is probably not a great, uh, a great plan. Bethram's writings did not end with Aboard a Flying Saucer. He, re- he released um, 
some other materials that were much more political in content. Uh, in 1958, uh, one really interesting one is called Facing Reality, and it's a collection of essays on a variety of topics. One is called Fighting Communism with Common Sense, and uh, Truman argues that American foreign aid spending, um, particularly to fund nations that were fighting communist insurrections, ran the risk of prolonging and enlarging the conflict between communist powers and the United States, uh, which in 1958 was pretty prescient. Similarly, um, he was worried about the label communist being applied to any kind of honest dissent. And um, he goes so far to assert that threats of communist incursion are being used as a tactic to distract Americans from other concerns, such as economic ones. There's another essay, The Sin Parlors of America, which is not nearly as interesting as it sounds, is mostly about uh, corruption at the state and local government level. And he blames most of Americans' problems on the Federal Reserve System, which is a pretty common tactic among, uh, among conspiracy theorists. And, and you do see some of that more political and economic conspiracy thinking leaking in to flying saucer writings, even at this early stage. Significantly, Aura Rains um, only appears briefly in the book, arriving to tell Bethram at one point that he needs to build a sanctuary for people to study universal wisdom or a church of some kind. So Truman Bethram, while he did not include political, social, or spiritual topics overtly in his actual contact tales, would go on to use his position as an established contactee figure and the audience that came along with that to espouse his political views in sort of separate writings. This is different than some contactees. A lot of contactees sort of work these political beliefs into their writings and claim that the aliens told them that, you know, we should not have atomic bombs or whatever. Bethram would not receive the uh, the kind of following or recognition that George Adamski or other contactees would have. But his story is interesting as part of the overall story of alien contact narratives. And really the only one that has um, the potential, I think, to be a really good TV series. I, I just have this image of of Truman Bethram meeting Aura Rains. And we spend a season or so trying to determine whether or not Truman is sane or insane and his family and friends argue about whether or not he's just gone crazy or if Aura Rains is a real space captain. In any case, it's certainly a different slice of the saucer life than we saw from Professor George Adamski and a different slice of life than any of us will probably ever encounter. Okay, so that was the final episode in our first six-episode series. We'll be back in two weeks with the beginning of Series 2, in which we'll explore some more contactees, um, dip our toe into the 80s with the strange tale of O.H. Krill, and um, some other exciting stuff. I'll also uh, be adding to your reading list along the way. In the meantime, thank you for listening. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.wordpress.com and on Twitter at saucerlife. Or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd uh, we really appreciate your feedback, so get in touch. 
sharing, retweeting links, very appreciated. Um, and thank you for being with us through these first six episodes, if you have. Uh, if you haven't, you can go back onto the webpage and click on the archived episodes link and uh, and check those out. Thank you to everyone who's uh, gotten in touch and, and shared opinions and views and, and feedback. Um, the Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. Keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.